some of you may know that, I don't know if you got a little notification on your phone or you saw it in the news or on your calendars or what, but the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah began this week. And um, just so you know, that is not Jewish Christmas, okay? Um, the, the Jews obviously don't believe in Jesus, so they don't call it Jewish Christmas, but I've heard people say that before. Oh yeah, that Hanukkah, that's like the Jewish Christmas, right? No, no it's not. But I do want to tell you a little bit about, a, a couple things about Hanukkah actually today, but when we get started. Um, that wasn't meant to be a bad joke, like that's what, what people think sometimes. Um, because Hanukkah, as you may or may not know, is often referred to as the festival of lights, the, the time of lights. And it's, um, it, uh, just to give you a little bit of the story, Hanukkah is an eight-day celebration of a miracle that occurred uh, right around 150 years before the birth of Christ. All right? So this is an event that took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament in that space of time. Um, and the, the Jews at the time, the, the city of Israel and the area of uh, or the city of Jerusalem in the area of Israel had been taken over by the Seleucids, okay? And they were led by this um, particularly weird leader, Antiochus. Um, and they had, they had taken over the temple and they had desecrated the temple. They had said, hey, we have uh, Greek heritage and we are going to force all of the Jewish people, the people of Israel to worship like we worship. You're going to worship Zeus, so they went into the temple, they set up a pillar, uh, a, a statue of Zeus, and then they did, and just to break your religion, what we're going to do is we're going to sacrifice a pig in your temple. And for the Jews, if you know that was as bad as it could possibly get, because a pig was an unclean animal. Um, Jews don't eat bacon and pork and ham, right? Um, and so they did this and desecrated the temple. And so at around 166 B.C., a group of Jews led by a man by the name of Judah of Maccabee, um, the Maccabee, he, he came through with a small group of people and they essentially ejected the conquerors, the Seleucids. They kicked them out of the, of the land and they wanted to rededicate the temple in Jerusalem. So they've had this kind of guerrilla warfare going on. They ran out this army. They took the temple back. And so the, they came through and they started wanting to cleanse everything that was happening in the temple. And one of the things that was supposed to happen in the temple was that all, all the time there was this, this menorah. And I've got a little picture of a menorah. You've probably seen this before. Um, it's on the Jewish flag and things like that. It's a, a candlestick, basically, an oil lamp which, with each of these seven little vials here representing the days of creation that this lamp in the temple was supposed to be an eternal flame. It was supposed to be burning night and day. And the, and, but the thing about this lamp is it could only have this special pure olive oil that had been consecrated by the priests. So when Judah and the rest of the, 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 the Jews came back into the temple, they looked around to see what had been raided and they could only find one vial of this oil to light the lamp with. And one vial of the consecrated special oil would last for only one day. But it took eight days for the whole consecration process to get the new oil ready. And so just in faith, they said, well, this is what we're going to do. We've, we need to have the lamp burning. We're going to pour in the oil and we're going to light it 
and we'll start the process and see what happens. Well, that one, uh, it wasn't the miracle that they actually kicked out the, the, the other army completely outnumbered. That wasn't the miracle that Hanukkah celebrates. The miracle is that that one vial of oil burned for all eight days. And at the end of the eight days, they could start over again. And from that point, it's always, that's why it was always referred to as a festival of light. This, this celebration of this miraculous thing The Jews saw it as, wow, God is with us. He is going to take care of us. He is going to do what he said he's going to do. And it's why they call it the Festival of Light. Well, as you know, Christmas is also a celebration of light. Christmas time is a celebration of light. Um, It's a celebration of the birth of Jesus, who called himself the light of the world, right? Right? Um, which is who he is. And, and we celebrate Christmas with lights. All right? We've got lights on trees in many of our houses. A lot of our houses we have decorated with lights. We see little twinkling lights in all the places that we go to. You see shops and stores with lights. Right? And, and it's, it's important. Um, it, it enhances the beauty of the season. But it's also meant to be a representation of spiritual light. The spiritual light that enters into the world in the the coming of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, brought that light with him as he was born into the world. Um, And and as we receive him, we find spiritual light. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And without the illumination of God, we're people of darkness. That doesn't mean that non-believers are, are empty and evil because we're all made in the image of God. And as far as we reflect the image of God, there's goodness in us. But we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we all need that cleansing light of Jesus. So why do I bring all this up to you? Because today in Acts, we're going to see the power of God's light in transforming a person. We're going to see light enter into this person, um, one of the most incredible transformations of a human life. A man who'd been walking in absolute darkness would be literally, as we'll see here, blinded by the glorious light of Jesus. And that same light, that same light that illuminated his heart is the same light of the world that continues to illuminate hearts today in 2023. And he's going to continue to do so as long as the earth exists. So with that, let's pray this morning as we jump into this message. Father, I do thank you for your light. I thank you for Jesus coming into this world. And Lord, as we have entered into a Christmas season, and we think about that very evening when Jesus was born, we think about the angels appearing to the shepherds, We think about that just glow that must have been as they began proclaiming your praises. We think about the the light of the world coming into this world. Lord, we are thankful. And God, as we think about that light here today and think about how we have been changed and transformed by your healing light, Lord, I pray that you would give us gratitude in our hearts for Jesus especially during this season, when we see the lights on houses, we see candles burning brightly, all these things to represent the season. Lord, may we be reminded of the light of Christmas, the reason of the season, Jesus. And may we be grateful, may we be thankful. 
And also, Lord, I pray that today as we see an example of the transformation that can happen in someone when your light pours into them. God, I pray that this season would also be a season of hope for us as we look around at the world around us, knowing it's a place of darkness, but also knowing that your light is here and that your light can transform. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope to see the loved ones that we have that, that need your light, the friends, the neighbors, the coworkers, the classmates, whoever it might be that we know needs your light. Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us, who, as children of the light, Lord, to be people that are, are, are sharing the good news of the great light that is Jesus. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So, open up, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we're going to start here in verse 1. We're going to go to uh, verse 31 today. And here's what it says in Acts 9, verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, our first um, introduction to Saul was when he was the man, if you remember, standing uh, and collecting the garments of the people that were stoning Stephen to death. All right, that was a few weeks ago, but if you remember the story, uh, there had been a, a selection of a few men to take care of the Hellenistic widows primarily, and they were ministering in these different ways. One of those men, Stephen, had an opportunity to preach. He did. He was getting in arguments with these other Hellenistic Jews. They brought him in front of the high priest. He talks to the entire council, and he just lays it out for them. They get furious. They take him, drag him outside, and stone him to death. And Saul, it told us there, as kind of a weird side note, it said, and a man named Saul stood there to collect the garments. And we're like, what's that have to do with anything? Well, it's because of who Saul is ultimately going to become. All right? And so now it comes back around here, um, and, and we find him here today. And what we've seen in, <coughs> excuse me, in these last couple of chapters is that he's been ravaging the church in Jerusalem. He's been going house to house, arresting people that believe in Jesus. All right, And here, what we see is he's wanting to expand his scope. Notice there, he's, he goes to the high priest and says, I want letters to go to, to Damascus. All right? I want to get out of the town. I want to go this way. I want to go north. All right? Now, not only was that unheard of, unprecedented, but what that also probably tells us is this guy and people like him had already gone all through Jerusalem. Basically, there was nothing else for them to hunt down. They had been from house to house through all of Jerusalem arresting believers, trying to eradicate the church as best, as best they could. And so now he's setting his sights on something bigger. He's like, all right, we've taken care of Jerusalem. Now let's go somewhere else. I want to go to Damascus. And so he goes to get these letters to go and raid Damascus. Um, Saul certainly wasn't the only person involved in this persecution, but because of who he would become, as we'll see about his future, we're going to learn these details of his past. So Damascus, let's talk about that just a little bit. Damascus is in Syria. It's kind of north and east of Jerusalem. It's 133 miles from Jerusalem. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. Josephus, the historian, says that Damascus was actually founded by Noah, as in 
Noah and the Ark fame, Noah's great-grandson is believed to have founded Damascus. All right, so this is a very old city, one of the, the most ancient cities in the world. Um, and at this time, Damascus was actually not under the Roman rule. Uh, it had been before, and then it was taken back by a, a king uh, by the name of Aretas, Aretas IV, who was the king of the Nabataeans. So you might wonder, well, how did that work? How is it that these Jewish leaders could even give Saul the authority to now leave international borders and head into this other country and drag people back to Jerusalem? What's going on here? Well, it just so happens that this king, Aretas IV, um, was the father-in-law of Herod Antipas. And I'm not going to get into all the Herods right now because it's a whole mind-boggling mess with all these guys named Herod and their sons. and their Anyway, uh, but Herod was the ruler in Galilee at the time, all right? And he was Jewish. And because they were family relatives, he had some political ties back and forth. And so it was so connected that ultimately the high priest could talk to Herod, Herod could talk to the king, and the king would say, all right, yeah, come get these guys. And so that's what was going on here in this. So Saul, with this you know, certified letter in his hand, sets out on this mission. All right? And what also it tells us here is that he's looking for any that would belong to the way. You see that in verse 2. Christians weren't called Christians yet. Okay, There was no name for them, really. Um, they won't be called Christians until Acts chapter 11. All right? They originally had just been viewed as a sect of Judaism. They just were like Jews like everybody else. But now with this persecution happening, they're like, well, you're not Jews because you believe in this Jesus guy. So we need to figure out some other delineation to describe the, even the leaders of, of, of Israel, the Jewish leaders, the high priests and all the council. They're like, well, we've got to call them something else. We're not going to call them our Jewish brothers and sisters. So what are they, what are they all about? Well, they follow the, the way of this guy Jesus. Great, we're calling them the way. And so now they've been referred to as they are the people of the way. And so who is Saul after? He's after people that are following Jesus, people of the way. That's where this title came from. But look what happens. Acts 9 verse 3. Here's what it says. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, Pause there for a second. This doesn't just mean it was a sunny day on the way to Damascus. All right, what it's describing here, when it's describing this light from heaven, is this supernatural spotlight on Saul. Now, if there had been a split second, I think, for Saul to kind of reflect on what was happening, um, I think it probably would have been bad. I think Saul probably would have taken for a second, he realizes he's walking along this road, middle of the day, and all of a sudden this incredible bright light comes around him. I wouldn't doubt if Saul's thinking, all right, God is appearing here, and he's going to tell me what a great job I'm doing. He's going to come here and say, oh yeah, I love how you've been taking care of these other, these whatever, you know, heretics. Great job, Saul. Saul's thinking, all right, I'm about to get rewarded from God. Well, God was about to speak to him, but it wasn't to uh, congratulate him on his devotion. Instead, it knocks him to the ground. It floors him. That's what it says in verse 4. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I think there was a bit of a pause after that statement. I think once God said that, when Jesus spoke this to Saul, I think Saul probably mentally and emotionally just came unglued. Whoa, what is going on right now? Did he just say what I think he just said? Here I am and on the ground in this bright pool of light and this voice from heaven is speaking to me and just said it's Jesus. What is happening? How can this be? And then the immediate follow-up questions is, what have I done and how can I fix this? Because this does not look good right now. Here's what happens next. Jesus continues to speak to him in verse 6 and says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. These were probably the three worst days of Saul's entire life. Everything he had devoted himself to, all of his energy, all of his focus, had been aimed in this one direction, and this encounter with this light changed it all. It wrecked everything. Everything he was imagining, everything he was thinking about, was changing right now. Of course he had no appetite. It says he doesn't eat for three days. Are you kidding? That's the least of his concerns. He had been spiritually blinded by the darkness, but now he was physically blinded by the light. Isn't that heavy? Now let's talk a little bit about Saul. What Luke doesn't tell us here, but we learn in other places of Scripture, is that Saul had devoted his entire life to becoming a Pharisee. That is, a teacher of the law, a leader of Israel. All right, and he had been trained by the best scholars of the time. And he had, he had devoted everything to this. He wasn't just this kind of you know, thug hitman that's traveling around arresting people. That wasn't his thing. That wasn't what he was all about. He viewed himself and his mission as the, the, the fact that he was a purifier of his nation. One who was going to clean things up and put things in order. He was looking at those people that were going off down this weird path and he's going to bring them all back and get things right. That's what he believed. He thought he was, had this noble task of removing the cancer, attacking his people. And he believed with his whole heart that as it describes there uh, in verse 1, breathing threats and murder, he believed that, that those threats and that murder in his heart was not only condoned by God, but would be celebrated by God. And he believed that what he was doing was God's work. What, what do we see? He's living in darkness, and he didn't know it. He had no idea. He had no inkling that he could be off. He believed this to be true. 
And this supernatural intervention literally stopped him in his tracks. And so for these three days, he's probably processing this. He's trying to unwind all of this and and play things back over in his mind. And he's looking at the scripture. Well, he's not. He's thinking about the scripture. Um, He's trying to figure out what has happened here. I imagine he probably first tried to convince himself that couldn't have happened. That was a hallucination. Nobody else uh, saw what I saw and did what I did. But then he's like, but I'm blind. (laughs) So something obviously happened uh, or else I wouldn't be blind right now. It was this experience, powerful experience, to show him that the light he thought he was walking in was darkness. It would have been hell on earth for a few days for Saul. Now, let's just... Let's just say this while we're here, thinking about it. Um, You know, the greatest tragedy that human beings will one day experience is when this life is over and they come and stand before the judgment, the throne of God, and, and, and in that, they're cast away from his presence. People are ultimately going to leave the light of God and be cast into darkness forever. That's the heaviest, hardest thing that people will ever experience. And unfortunately, that's what they're going to have for eternity. And when we think about this and we, we consider the light that we've been given as a gospel to other people, we need to, I know it's hard to hear, but we need to know that that's the way it is. And we need to know that God wants to use us to bring light to as many people. The Bible tells us he doesn't desire that any would perish but that all would have everlasting life. That's not what God wants for anyone. Another thing that Luke does not describe here was what was going on in Saul's heart. What was happening as he's processing this, as he's thinking through these things, as he's wrestling with all of this? What's happening in his heart and his mind and his soul? Because here's what happened. Saul, going full speed ahead in this wrong direction, essentially crashes into God and God stops him straight and now he's trying to sort this all out and work through all this but what Luke doesn't get to doesn't describe here is somewhere in that process in this prayer in this sorrow in this this transformation that's happening what we see here is that that ultimately Saul repents and believes in God That part's not written down, but that's what happens. We don't know how long his conversion took place. I've got a a theory that it probably took all three days. (laughs) And as as, as soon as he had repented and believed in the Lord, then I think God sent relief. But he's wrestling through these things. And we know, though, that he was converted in that moment because of what happens next. In verse 10, it says this. It says, now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord... I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I thank God for people like Ananias, people that are willing to be obedient, to do what God calls them to do, even if it doesn't make sense to them or it seems dangerous. Now, admittedly, Ananias kind of double-checked with God, and he's like, Lord, are you sure it's this guy? Because I've heard about this guy. Rumor has it that he's not only done all this in Jerusalem, but he's here with authority to do these things to the believers. Are you sure you want me to go into this house? I think what you meant to say is just don't go near this house. But no, that's not what Ananias does. Instead, Ananias says, all right, if that's what you want, Lord, that's what I'm doing. So that would have been a scary thing for Ananias to come up and walk into this house knowing that he's surrounded by the rest of these men that have come with him from Jerusalem to do this very thing. And instead of them trying to sort out and, and sneak through the houses and, and, and pull out Christians, here's a Christian walking up to your front door, knocking on the door and saying, hey, can I come in? I'm a Christian and I'm looking for Saul. But that's what he did. It's a beautiful thing. Um, it's, this is the only time that Ananias appears in the Bible here, but his small obedience made a huge impact. And guys, that's what obedience is like sometimes. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's risky, but it's what we're called to as believers. Now, coming to faith in Jesus was very different for Saul than it is for most people. He was hand-selected by God for a particular work in a very extraordinary way. But still, Saul had to make the choice whether he would follow his call or not. Now, I don't know if any of you have had conversions quite as dramatic as Saul. <laughs> um, but still, God has a call on your life that you have to choose or reject. And verse 19b, kind of the second half there, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. With the same passion and intensity that Saul had persecuted the Christians, he now began to promote faith in Jesus. Why? Because the light had transformed him. He was a different person now because of the light of Jesus in his life. His conversion was powerful and complete. And now he's taken his exhaustive knowledge of Scripture and his overwhelming intellect, and he's just dismantling all the Jewish arguments resisting Jesus. 
His plan was to be walking into synagogues when he got to Damascus, but not to talk about Jesus in this way. What he planned to do is say, hey, I'm coming from Jerusalem, and we just want you all to know that there's this sect of people called the Way that are from us out of these synagogues. They're claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. It's all false. But instead, here now he shows up to these synagogues and says, hey, you might have heard about this guy, Jesus. He's the Messiah. And people are like, what is going on? He had been changed. He had a new life. God has different plans for each one of us. And he has uniquely made us and blessed us with different gifts and graces. And I know that sometimes we can read a story like this and think, all right, well, that's what I've got to do then. I need to imitate what I see right here. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go out and confound the atheists. You know, that's what Paul did. He walked in and started arguing with the Jews. So I'm going to get out there and I'm going to argue with the atheists. Now, I want to caution against that a little bit. If you saw a bright light from heaven and God spoke to you and said, you go to Balboa Park every Sunday and begin attacking the atheists there, then go and do that if that's what God's calling you to do. But I want us to slow down and be careful about making jumps like that when we read a story like this. Because we don't want to get ahead of God's work, even if we mean well. All right? Jesus calls us to follow him, not to lead him or to drag him in the direction we want to go. And sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes a person gets saved and they're excited about it. And then they begin to bash all of their unbelieving friends and family and all that kind of stuff because they found the light of Jesus. Now, they found the light of Jesus and it's real and it's true and it's good and it's changed their life. But what you also do is you run into other people who are like, yeah, I remember, man, my aunt got saved and all she would talk about is this Jesus guy and telling us all that we're all going to hell and doing all this and every family reunion, all we'd hear about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with that, Right? That kind of thing happens. I, I picture it sort of like this. I was, um, I was driving the other day, and I saw this family walking down the sidewalk, and um, the, the dad was pushing a stroller, and the, the mom was up in front, a small little woman with three, three, not one, not two, three big old golden retrievers on a leash. And I mean, it's like she was small. They were big. Now, for their credit, it was all under control. These dogs were just prancing side by side and all orderly and the, the dad was cruising along. Everybody looked, it was in control. All right, but I was thinking about that. I'm like, if one of those dogs decides they're going to do something else, there's nothing this woman's going to be able to do to hold back these three dogs. That's a lot of dog power in front of them, right? And you've seen that too. You've seen people with a dog that is not well behaved and in control, that is doing its own thing, dragging the person with the leash, right? It's like, over here, over there, back here, you're pulling them, they're pulling you. It's, I, I've seen some things before, I'm like, this is not going to end well. And the, the ones that have to grab up close to the, the leash as another little dog comes by or whatever to keep the dog from bolting, right? What I'm trying to describe here is, yes, I'm calling you dogs, I'm sorry, some of you are offended, some of you are, I don't know, complimented, but we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be these dogs that are trying to yank Jesus with us. God, over here, over here. This is going to work, you know? Hurry up. Like, where's your light? Come on, your power. you got to save this person. Let's do this right now. Or, or we're dragging back here, and the Lord's like, I'm over here. Come on, come on. That's not what we want to do, and sometimes we are. 
Sometimes it's even with, with, for good reason. We're, we're just excited about something or we feel strongly about something and we're wanting to, to rush ahead in one order or one direction or the other. But the best path for the Christian, for the disciple of Jesus, is to walk with him. That's what Jesus describes. In fact, he described it as being yoked together. All right, and we're not really farmers uh, that I know of in here. I'm not. A yoke is something that a, a big wooden beam that they would put across the, the shoulders of livestock. So like an ox or a cow or horses. So that when they would put that yoke across there and they could strap them into a, a carriage or a plow, then they would be able to walk and share the load and pull and carry whatever it was they needed to carry. And so when Jesus makes this description and says, hey, I want you to be with me under my yoke, what's he saying? I want you to walk right beside me. I want you to come right at the same speed that I come. And when I stop, you stop. When I go, you go. We're side by side. It's in, a math, it's in Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30. It says, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to have to do some hard things in our lives. Or that we should always be carefree. But we just need to stay close to him. Part of Saul's specific role was to bring reform and correction to the Jewish institution that had raised him. God will likely have a different role for you. And that's for you to discover with him. Okay? Let's move on. Verse 23. So Saul, has, he's in Damascus. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ. It's all going well for a little while. But in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. All right? So they had a different perspective of what's happening. And it goes on and it says, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And, and let's stop right there. So, so Saul went from being, you know, the poster boy for persecution of the way to now its strongest proponent. And the Jews had had enough of it. They're like, all right, we were listening to you at first, but we don't care what letters you have from where. You're the one who's gone nuts. We want you dead, and we're just going to eliminate you. God, though, was not done with him, and he slipped away. They, I remember this story well as a little kid in Sunday school, because you know you like all the, the really heroic kind of stories in the Bible, and you, here you're picturing this guy being lowered down in a basket down this city wall and escaping in the night. That's what happened. That's how they got him out of the city alive. And it says in verse 26, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, so he's now come back down to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that was the Greek-speaking Jews, but they also now were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, 
they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It was no surprise, really, that the disciples in Jerusalem didn't trust him. In fact, that would have been some hard conversations because many of the people that these disciples in Jerusalem knew that had been thrown in prison had been thrown in prison at the hands of this very guy. And so now he shows up and they're like, are you kidding? This guy is supposed to be, I mean, is this like, this the Jewish leader's like weak attempt at espionage? He's just trying to come in here and spy on us and try to, you know, take a, a, another second list? Like, what's going on? What do you mean? He's, he's been, been converted. It was hard. But thankfully, Barnabas saw things clearly. We met Barnabas back in chapter 4, where Luke told us that Barnabas was actually his nickname. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. All right? Barnabas was just an encouraging guy. And so it's not that surprising that, you know, Barnabas, the optimist, says, brings Saul under his wing and tells everybody, no, guys, really, here's what happened. He explained it all to me. You know, God met him on the road and he was blind and this guy Ananias and he's been, you know, it's all good. He actually has been converted. And whatever Barnabas said, because Barnabas was respected and believed, they're finally like, all right, we guess it's true. We're inviting him in. And so Saul was integrated into the, the community of faith there. Now, from that, I think we see something that is important here. One of the, the, the lessons to learn as a mature Christian is that we have to expect God's transformation of people's lives. We have to expect it and we have to welcome it. All right? Here's the thing. If someone is walking with Jesus, they will change. They will. It's just the way it is. If you walk with Jesus every day, you will change. No exceptions. It probably won't be overnight, but it will happen. It will happen. And we have to learn to be people of grace and forgiveness and mercy and love just as we've received those things. Because it is true that without God, people rarely change for the better, but with God, people will always change for the better. But it's hard for us to change our opinion of people. And it's hard to forget history. And it's hard for us to forgive things that have happened in the past that we know were not okay. And so as Christians, one of the things that we have to learn, because it doesn't usually come natural, is we have to learn that that is a truth, that God is going to change people. And if people can come to the Lord, they will change. But we have to give room in our hearts to allow those people to change. That's what the disciples did here with Saul. Here's a guy who literally murdered their friends. But now he's been changed. And the only explanation, the only good explanation and true explanation is, all right, we have to forgive this guy. We have to accept this guy. We have to welcome this guy because he has changed because of Jesus. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we would have been in darkness like he was in darkness. And we have to accept that. When we've known someone before they walked with Christ it's really hard to kind of reform our perspective of them. When trust is ruined, it is hard 
to rebuild. It's especially difficult in families. All right? But if God is doing a true work in somebody's life, we have to embrace it and celebrate it, even when it's incomplete. So how does that hit you today? Well, it's going to hit all of you differently. But what I'm hoping is that you're going to really take an assessment of the people in your life and start thinking about some of those people that probably you don't like, and that may be a soft way of putting it, people that have hurt you, people that you think are hopeless, incorrigible, um, whatever word you want to use for it to say this person's never going to change, there's nothing that could happen to change them. Guess what, guys? There's something that could happen to change them. And it's the work of God in their lives. Now, I'm not saying that then what we must do is embrace everything. They, they came to, you know, Christmas time this year and they said, well, I found Jesus. So you got to now accept me for everything, who I am and everything I've ever done. No, I'm not saying that either. But you have to expand your heart to realize people can change with God. Saul was undoubtedly a fiery personality. These bold sermons it keeps telling us that he's giving, um, they were confrontative. They were powerful. And I'm sure he was making converts, but he was obviously making enemies and, and pretty strong enemies. So far, he's only been in two cities now that he's been a follower of Jesus, and they want to kill him in both places. All right, that gives you some insight onto who this guy was. But later, what we'll see in his life is that God tempered him in many ways. God changed him in many ways. It seems that as he grew, his preaching became much gentler. And that's even what, uh, he took some accusations you see in one of the epistles where they say, you know, when he's in person, he's like a softy. But his letters, they're powerful, you know. Well, that, to claim that this guy Saul here at this point was a softy, I don't think so. But God continued to work on him. Um, A large portion of his ministry, as we'll see as we go through Acts, he's just going to get run out of town after town after town. Paul comes in, well, Saul, his name's not Paul yet. Saul comes in and he preaches and people are like, get this guy out of here. We want to kill this guy. Run him out of town. Run him out of town. Run him out of town. But he's going to change because we're all in process. Look at the last verse here, verse 31. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multi- multiplied. Now, way back in Acts chapter 1, uh, I've referenced this verse many times, Acts 1.8, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he laid out the plan for how the gospel was going to spread. And he told them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so this moment right here in, in Acts chapter 9, this verse 31, now we see basically phase 1 and 2 of the gospel going out has been completed. The city of Jerusalem has heard the gospel. The region of Judea has heard the gospel. Samaria, and now pushing even into Damascus, has heard the gospel. And now it's just for the ends of the earth is the next stop. So what do we do with something like this as we we think about this? Um, I think that as we celebrate the Christmas season this year, I wanted us to just remind ourselves, as I've already said, 
about the light of transformation. You see a, a, a person like Saul here, how his life was changed. We have to remember that we've been changed if we've truly been changed by the light of the world. And we also have to remember that now, part of the way that God changes us is that he makes us the light. We become the light of the world. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He said to his followers, he said, you are the light of the world. You mean that light that transforms people's lives like Saul? Yes. That transforming light that can turn a liar into somebody who tells the truth? Yes. That person that can be full of anger and hatred into somebody who is kind and gentle? Yes. You are the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, and you are the light of the world. He goes on, he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to go and be the light of the world. He is the one, when we've been converted and we've been transformed, He's the one who lights that light in us. He gives us His Holy Spirit to transform us and change us, but it's meant to glow. It's, as he says, it's not meant to be put under a basket and hidden. It's meant to shine into all the people in the house, all the people in our relationships, all the people at work, all the people at school, all the people we interact with. We are to be the light. And as we wrap up today and, and we, we move into a time of response this morning, a couple questions for you to consider as we spend some time in, in, in responding today. Where might God be calling you to shine his light this Christmas season? Where might it be? Maybe for you, it's at school with some friends at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's a family gathering that's going to happen. Maybe it's with a neighbor down the street. Where might God be calling you to shine his light this season? Here's another question for you. Who should you be praying for that they would come to the light. That's something we've been talking about for the past couple weeks. Who can we pray for to see that God would do a work? I know it's very easy to get tired of praying for the same old person that's not getting saved. But, but who is it that God would put on your heart to pray for that they would come to the light? Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the time. And who might you encourage as you see them following Jesus? That's the one other thing, is because um, I, th I think that a lot of times we can become discouraged as we think about who we are in the world. And, and I think it's great that we could learn to encourage each other to continue to be the light of the world as we're called to be. So with those thoughts in your mind, and as you begin to pray those things, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to shift over to a time of response. Um, we've got a little extra space here today, and that's set up on purpose, so that we can have some time to pray and to worship, to think about these things. Um, and as we, we move to that time, let's, let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for the light of Jesus that has entered into this world.
And God, um, my heart this morning is just that personally, I know I want to be full of light. And I know that many of my brothers and sisters here, they feel the same way. They want to be people that are walking in the light. And so, Lord, today as we consider this passage of Scripture, as we consider what you have done and what you've begun in our lives, Lord, we just ask that you would help us be encouraged and strengthened and filled today by your Spirit. As we take some time now in the next few minutes, a few songs here, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would be doing all that you've begun and you continue to to, uh, bring people to our hearts and our minds, people that we might be able to pray for. We pray, God, that, that, that your light would shine out from us. And so, Lord, today, if we know that there are things that are maybe clouding the windows of our hearts, Lord, we want to lay those things down today. Maybe in this time of response, we've got to lay down some things before you to confess some sin, to get washed clean once again. And if so, Lord, I pray that that's what you would bring to our minds, that you'd allow us to have hearts of repentance, that we would deal with those things. Maybe instead this time of response is that you just want to put on our hearts um, some people that we just, here we take five minutes to just pray. That we just pray, Lord, with just a passion for their souls. Maybe there's some spiritual strongholds and spiritual places that need to be eroded and and dismantled to get into that person's heart and life. And so, Lord, today we want to join you in that and intercede on that person's behalf. Whatever it is, Lord, meet us in this place and allow us to experience you, encounter you in worship and in prayer. And may you be glorified. And may you fill us to to go and be the light of the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.